is going to speak today, and we're looking forward to hearing what the Lord has put on his heart as we're going through this series this month, uh, doing life together, handling extraordinary days. And I've got to pick up the microphone. Thank you, Ron. I've got pretty good vision like that. I saw him coming. All right. Um, it's great to be with you guys, and if you're visiting with us at Grace, uh, we're thrilled you're here today, and uh, trust that uh, you'll enjoy our time of worship uh, together. And I wanted to mention a couple of uh, uh, announcements this morning. One concerns the shrimp boil, which is Tuesday night at 6.30, and we'd like you to come early, men, and fellowship, and I believe uh, there are sign-up sheets right here in the fellowship hall, and um, or the foyer, excuse me, and if you don't like shrimp, there'll be chicken fingers. Wow, I hope you enjoy those. But the shrimp will be here, and uh, we're looking forward to fellowship together. And that's one of the things, I think, this last year that uh, we all missed. And so it's nice to be back together, as we have been for a while now. But, you know, one of the things the Lord just keeps continually placing on my mind and on my heart is, hey, that enjoy being together, enjoy being together, because of the interruptions that we had. But you know what's so wonderful about the coming of the Lord is when He comes for us, we'll be together forever with the Lord and with one another. So I trust today that you know Christ as your Savior and that you're certain that you're going to be with the Lord. I also want to make mention of New to Grace, which is on the 22nd of this month, and we will have lunch together here uh, after church, and then uh, following that will be an introduction to uh, Grace. And uh, knowing, I think, what goes on behind the scenes. There's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that maybe you're not aware of as uh, someone who's been coming for a while, but uh, it's an opportunity to meet the people who um, really push the buttons here. Uh, I just stand up here, a lot of people push the buttons behind the scenes, and I'm so, so thankful for them. Uh, the Lord has blessed us with many, many people who serve and who help in the ministry here at Grace. So just wanted to make mention of those uh, two things. I'd like you to take your Bibles and go to the book of Acts. And chapter 2, and I just wanted to read a few verses with you that, that speak about uh, the issue of together. Um, in fact, in five verses, um, the word together is mentioned twice. And as we know, Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of the church. And the Bible tells us in verse 41 that after Peter preached... 3,000 souls saved. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> so, like, if you're, if you're uh, thinking, wonder what the church is supposed to be doing today, preach the gospel and watch the Lord work and watch the Lord save people. In the last five to six weeks, I've seen four young men, 17 and older, come to Christ. And the uh, Lord's doing a work. And as a church, we shouldn't be surprised that we're in the last days. I mean, that should not take us by surprise. And we have a responsibility to share the gospel. And uh, so I trust that, that we're all doing that. But I wanted to just get you guys to stand and as we read verses uh, 42 through 47 of Acts chapter 2. It says, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, 
and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading, there's a lot of things I could emphasize here, but that last part, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were being saved. And listen, we know the urgency, right, of the days that we live in. And if we have Christ in our life, it should be just, I mean, there, I don't even know a word to describe the opportunities that God would give us to share that story of how he changed our life. And so I, I pray that, that that's where you are in, in your life, that, that you're ready to share what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in you. All right? So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll begin our worship time singing together. Father, we just want to thank you so much for this morning and for the opportunity we have to be together, to be able to worship together. Lord, we, we live in times where we see a lot of people walking in fear. Lord, I pray that you would help us as believers to walk with a mind and a heart of peace. That we would understand, Lord, that, that you're a God that does not want us to be anxious. You want us to rest in you. And so there may be things in our lives that are causing that anxiety. I pray that we would just throw those things at you and leave them with you. Lord, you want to take all the burdens of our life. You want those. And, uh, Lord, you're more than capable of handling all of those things that every one of us has in here and every believer around the world. It's amazing. You, there is no one like you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to release those things. Help us to walk, Lord, by faith and not by sight. Help us to know and to believe and to be assured that moment by moment you are with us. As your word says, you never leave us and you never forsake us. And as we come together today, I pray that our time around your word and our time as we sing will be pleasing to you because we want you to receive all the glory and all the honor. And Lord, we pray for John and I pray for a real freedom for him. And Lord, that you would just speak every word through John today that all of us in this room might grow closer to you. And all these things we pray in the wonderful name of Christ who is Lord. Amen. Y'all get that next Saturday prayer breakfast? Men, young, and old. All right, 7 o'clock. Y'all did get that right.
<laughs> it's great to see all of you this morning. It, it, it is awesome to be together, and it's vital that we be together um, to worship our Lord. And in Family Matters this morning, we were talking about um, how in Scripture we, we, we learn that the wisdom of God is foolishness to those who are perishing and that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. And so there's a great divide there that we were talking about. And, um, you know, if we're not gathered together, um, hovering around the truth that is only found in God's word, we're going to digress. Um, and so it is vital that we, uh, we be able to be together this morning and worship our Lord together. So let's do that. Power to save. 
says if we confess, uh, confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Maybe you walked through the door this morning and you were just uh, you're frustrated um, maybe you're walking in sin may I encourage you that God's word says that if we confess he's faithful and just to forgive us right then let's continue to worship together so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him. How I proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Oh, how sweet. Just to trust this cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me beneath the healing cleansing blood. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I Precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I prove Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for Trust him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust him, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that he is. 
and sing a new song when you're weak he is strong he can heal your wounded soul and calm the storm inside you guys may be seated Good morning. Let's see if I can get all this to work right. Okay. So I'm worried about our pastor. I think he had a brief moment of insanity when he asked me to do this. Because I'm a rookie. I've never done this before. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you can get past the presentation and listen to the message, I think you'll be blessed. <clears throat> I want to talk to you today about what's on the slide here, attitudes and purpose. That's attitudes that we have when God brings something difficult into our life, a trial, a trouble, and then the purpose for which he brings those trials to us. And the reason I accepted that they had offered to speak and the reason I'm wanting to do this is because God has been working in my life in this very area for a number of years now. Uh, most of you know, but for those of you that don't, you know, I, I was diagnosed with lung disease in 2016. And I've learned over the years that when one organ doesn't work right, nothing in the body works right. And so... You know, for the last five years, it's been complication, fix that one, next complication, fix that one, and just it just keeps going. But I can say that through it all, God has been with me in all of that. And I don't say that because I'm able to stand up here. He has restored a measure of health to me that I didn't have, but, and I'm grateful for that, but he was with me, and I could, I could sense his presence. He would give me scripture that I needed just when I needed it, just the right scripture. And so, you know, he's, he's taken me to different scriptures to look at, and, and that's what I want to share with you today. I know that I'm not the only person in this room with a problem. I'm looking out over this congregation, and, you know, I see people that are ill. They're sicker than I am. And I see people that are caregivers. It's just wearing them down. You know, I see people that have heartache over children that are having troubles and, and adult children that are going through difficult things. It just tears your heart out as a parent. But, and I could go on. The list is long. But I'm hoping that today what I share with you it's helped me, and I'm hoping that it'll help you to navigate whatever trial you're going through, whatever it is you're dealing with. Now, I think, I think my experience is probably similar to what most people go through when they have a, a long-duration trial in their life. 
Um, I started out when I was diagnosed. It was like, okay, God, I know this is from you. Please teach me what I, what I need to learn from this. But um, as the years went by and the problems got worse, the questions came up. And the questions were, why is this happening to me? What did I do? And the second question was, when is it going to stop? And when I got to that point, I think that's when God started teaching me. And he started showing me that those are the wrong questions to be asking. The questions that we should be asking as Christians is, how will I respond to this? Because how we respond says a lot about where our walk is with the Lord. Um, As Christians, we know that everything that comes into our life passes through God's filter. He knows everything that's going on, and he's got a purpose for it. And if we believe that, the only response we should have is an active faith in God. Not, Not a passive faith that just sits there and takes the body blows, but an active faith in God that takes a hold of the promises in his word and lives their life and responds to their problems believing those promises. And a faith that says, God, I don't understand why this is happening. God, I don't like it. But God, I trust you with whatever you're doing. I know you know what you're doing and I trust you. In the Bible, we've got a lot of examples of active faith. One of my favorites is Noah because God asked Noah to do something extraordinary. Um, If you've ever been to the ark exhibit and seen the size of that, it's amazing when you think they built that in Noah's day. And Noah did that having never seen a drop of rain, much less a flood. But he believed what God said and he obeyed. And that's what active faith is, hearing and obeying. It's that simple. And that's what we need to do. God has given us directions. He's given us instructions. And he's even given us commands on how to deal with problems that come into our life. I've looked at a lot of scripture over the last couple of years on this subject. And I've picked three of them out today that I want to go over with you. And as we go through these scriptures you're going to see a common theme. It's going to come up again and again and again. Matter of fact, there's three common themes. The first common theme is eternity. We need to approach our life and we need to approach our problems with an eternal perspective. The second thing you're going to see is God is very, very, very interested in in our heart attitude. What are we thinking when this comes into our life? Do we really trust him? And then the third thing is God does have a purpose. These are not random acts. They come into our life, and God has a reason for it. So let's look at the first scripture, and you're going to recognize it. It's James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking for nothing. I'm reading from the New King James, which uses the word patience. 
I think some translations use endurance, and I think that's a better word. It's the idea of just enduring and keeping on, keeping on. So that's, that's the way I'm going to read it from now on. What I'd like to do is split this verse into two sections and deal with the part that, that talks about attitude first, and then we'll come back and deal with the part that deals with purpose. So the attitude is my brethren. So he's speaking to Christians. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That is an imperative tense. That means that's not a suggestion. It's not a request. It's a command. God's telling us, he's commanding us, that when he brings a problem into our life, we're to rejoice over it. That doesn't seem normal. (laughs) It doesn't seem normal to me. And... uh, Well, we'll develop that idea a little bit more in just a minute. First of all, I want to just run through some of the meanings of the key words there. That word count, I think some translations use evaluate or consider. In the Greek, it means to reason. And it's talking about sitting down and intellectually assessing what you're going through and coming to a logical conclusion. God wants us to think about why he brings these things into our life. And that logical conclusion is to have joy, which I don't, I didn't fully understand. That word joy means cheerfulness, happiness, and calm delight. God wants us to be happy in the midst of our problems. And he wants us to exhibit a calmness in the chaos. The word various means variegated or many colored. And what they're saying, what the author is saying here is that During our lifetime, we're going to encounter a lot of different problems. And they're going to be in different shapes. They're going to be in different sizes and different colors. And most importantly, they're going to be in different degrees of intensity. In my life, I found that the problems I had when I was younger were very important to me. But as I've gotten older, the problems have gotten more intense. And that may be the case for most of us older people. And then the last one is the word trials, and that just means to put a person to the, to the test. Everybody, whether you're a believer or not a believer, you're going to have problems in your life because we live in a fallen world. But for the Christian, again, God brings special trials to us. He gives us exactly what we need in the perfect time that we need it. So that's the meaning of some of the key words. Now, we're being told here, to evaluate our problem as something to rejoice about. And the reason why is in the second part of the verse, because God's going to use it to work out something in our life. Well, (laughs) I read that and I struggled with it. Um, That was a hard pill to swallow. Because, you know, I tried, I prayed about it. God, give me joy in this. And I couldn't find any joy in in my problems. And I'm sure many of you are thinking the same thing. You don't have any joy in what you're going through. So I asked God, you know, either give me joy or show me what this verse means. If I'm misunderstanding it, show me what I need to know. And in my life, at least, God has always been faithful. Whenever I've come to him with a sincere question, he answers it. Now, it may not be in my time, but he always answers it. And this time he answered it pretty quick, thank goodness, because I had to explain it to (laughs) y'all. 
And he showed it to me in another scripture. And I want to go to that and we'll talk about that. Then we'll come back and finish James. But the other scripture is Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. And that says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So there's two main things we need to see here. And the first, the author of Hebrews pictures our life as an endurance race. Our Christian walk is an endurance race. And do you remember in James we said we're going to have various trials? They're going to happen over and over again in our life. Well, for purposes of this verse, I want you to think of those trials as hurdles. So you've got a track set up. That's your race that God's given you to run, and there's hurdles. And they're different sizes. Some are pretty low and easy to clear. Some are pretty high and not so easy to clear. Now, how do we clear these hurdles? We're given an example And that example is Jesus and how he cleared a very big hurdle in his life. That hurdle was the cross. We'll never experience anything like he experienced. So we're told to look at him as an example. And the first thing we see is that he endured. said he endured the cross. That word means to stay under. It's a military term, staying under the authority over you. And it's a verb. It's an, it's an action word. Like I said earlier, we ought to have active faith. Jesus actively chose to stay under the will of the Father. He didn't have to. He could have rejected the cross. You remember what he said to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter chopped off the ear of the high priest's servant? He said, put your sword back. Don't you think I could just call 12 uh, legions of angels? 12 legions of angels is 72,000 angels. I believe that would have done the trick. But Jesus never called those angels. Why? Well, the verse says it's because the joy that was set before him. And it's the same word we saw in James. It's cheerfulness, happiness, calm delight. Does this mean that Jesus had joy about the cross? Was he looking forward with happiness about being nailed to a tree? I don't think so. If you look in Matthew, um, we see Jesus praying in chapter 26, verse 39. He says, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I don't think Jesus was looking forward to the cross. He was looking forward to what was coming after the cross. And I believe that was heaven. And the reason I say that, the last part of the verse says he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus could see beyond the cross. He could see heaven. He could see him being restored to the glory he had before he came to this earth. For me, when I think about that, the first thing that pops into my mind is whatever I'm going through, however bad it is, it's temporary. Heaven's coming, and we're all going to go there if we know the Lord. And I'm going to get a glorified body, and it's going to have two good, healthy lungs in it. 
And I'm going to get to run and jump and all that. So he could look beyond the cross. And I think another thing that Jesus saw was all the millions of people that were going to come to salvation through that cross. He's going to be restored to glory, and we're going to be up there glorifying him and worshiping him. And when I think about that, what I think about is when I go through a trial, I don't want to do anything that would push somebody away from salvation. When I went through my, well, I was still working. I just retired in March. And the people at work, they knew that I was a Christian because I had talked to many of them. And I was teaching Bible studies at lunch. And they saw me losing weight. They saw me injecting medications. They saw that and they were watching. They wanted to see, does John really believe what he says? And I hope they got the picture that I did. Um, I hope that maybe someday one of them will remember and they'll, they'll say, yeah, it must be true because he lived like it. So Christ endured, endured the cross and he had joy for what was coming afterwards. But there's another thing. It says he despised the shame of the cross. That word despise means to have a low regard for something. When I was, before I got sick, I was a runner. And every day when I got home from work, I'd run three miles. And most of that was going through neighborhoods. And not everybody keeps their dogs put up. So I had a billy club that I'd carry with me. And I'd put that handle, that billy club in this hand, and I'd let it rest in the crook of my arm, and I'd run with that club. Well, there was this one house that had two Doberman pinchers. And they were fenced in the backyard, but I think that fence was just a suggestion because they routinely got out. And so when I would approach that house, I'd be watching it close to see if them dogs were out. And if they charged me, that billy club came out immediately. And if they got close enough, you know, they were quicker than I was. I'd be fanning the air, but I'd be trying to hit them in the snout. I gave those Dobermans very high esteem because they could hurt me. Now, later on in my run, there was this lady that had a little... I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a chihuahua. I don't remember. But it was about this big. And sometimes she'd be out in the front yard when I'd be running by, and that dog would be with her. And it'd come out yapping at me like it thought it was a Doberman. Well, my billy club stayed right where it was. And I didn't pay much attention to that dog because it couldn't hurt me. It could trip me up, but it couldn't hurt me. The cross only bruised the heel of Christ. It crushed the head of Satan. The cross could only hurt Jesus physically. It couldn't touch him spiritually. We may not enjoy what we're going through, but we can learn. We can learn from it. And we can look beyond it. So Jesus was our example here. He could look beyond. Jesus is God. He could see heaven. It was, I think it was easier for him than it is for us. I think we have to be conditioned to look at life like that. It doesn't come to us easily. And I think if we go back to James, we see how, how that works, and how we get conditioned to look at life from an eternal perspective. So back in James, 
My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And now comes the purpose. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We learn to look beyond our troubles through testings. That word testing means to test something to see if it's genuine. And what's being tested? Our faith. That's what the verse says. The testing of our faith. You can probably look at me until I've never touched a weight in my life. But I'm told that if I ever started wanting to lift weights, I'd have to start with a real lightweight and work my way up. And each time I work out, my muscles would get a little stronger and I could go to a heavier weight, use that and get a little stronger and move up. That is the Christian life. As we endure through testing and we see Christ's faithfulness in our life, our spiritual muscles get stronger and stronger and stronger because we learn that Christ is faithful. And as that happens, the more our faith grows, something else happens. We become more like Christ. Look at the last part of the verse. It says that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. That word perfect doesn't mean sinless perfection. It means fully developed. And the word complete means to be whole. That whole phrase taken together indicates progress. Progress in our Christian walk. If we're making progress in our Christian walk, we're becoming more like Christ. And we can see that when we do what Christ did. He put his will under the will of the Father When we can put our will under the will of Christ, under the Father, we're making progress. We're becoming more like Christ. So that's the first verse. Some trials are meant to grow us spiritually, and because of that, we should look at them with an eternal perspective that gives us joy that God is actually working in our life. The next verse has a different purpose. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, I've only got 5 through 6 up there now. We'll come back to 7 through 11 in a minute. But what we're going to see here is God brings stuff into our life sometimes for correction. And before we go into these verses, I want to make sure we understand um, we understand what these verses are talking about. Um, we're going to see that God sees our sin and he reacts to it. Well, you might say, well, I thought God doesn't see our sin, that it's under the blood of Christ. And you're absolutely right. But there's two aspects to salvation. There's actually a third that Thad talked about last week, glorification. But the two I want to cover is judicial. That's, that's the part where God says in his heavenly court of law, you're innocent. I don't see your sin. It's under the blood of Christ. But there's also sanctification. That's, that's when God starts to work in our life. As soon as we're saved, he starts that process of changing us and making us more like Christ. It's from that aspect that God sees sin. And in his kindness, he corrects us. So I want to be clear that the verses we're about to read deal with sanctification, not justification. 
So let's look at verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So that is a quote from Proverbs chapter 3. And again, I'm reading from New King James, and it uses the word chastening, which I do not like. I think some other translations use the word discipline. I don't like that one either. The meaning of the word in the original language is tutorage, education. And by, by application in this, these verses, it's education through correction. We see the picture of a parent in love correcting their child because they've got the big picture. They want to do what's right by their child. So what do these verses say about how we should respond when God corrects us? Well, it says we shouldn't despise the correction of the Lord. Does that word sound familiar? In verse 3, we said Christ despised the shame of the cross. This word is similar, but it's a little different. It still has that idea of low regard, but it goes a step further, low regard to the point of ignoring something. We cannot ignore God's correction when he, when he brings it to us. When something comes in your life, don't look at it as just a common suffering of life and say, oh, well, everybody goes through this. For, for us, for us that believe, that's not the case. Everything is from God, and it has a purpose. The verse goes on to say, don't be discouraged when you're rebuked. That word in the original language means to relax or to stop. It was used a lot, a lot of times talking about taking a bow string off of a bow. You compress the bow, take the string off, and now the string doesn't have tension anymore. It's relaxed. Satan wants us to focus on our problems so that we'll get discouraged and we'll drop out of the Christian race. When I was young... When I graduated high school a long, long time ago, I decided I wanted to go to college. And I was the firstborn, and at that time, my parents didn't have the resources to send me. So I got a full-time job, and I went to school at night, part-time. Two nights a week, I'd leave work, and I'd drive downtown to UAB, and I would attend classes from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock. And in the nights I wasn't in class, I was at the library or I was at home studying, preparing for a test or writing a paper or whatever it was. It took me eight years to get out of school doing that. I know some of you went to school for eight years, but it wasn't because you went part-time. But for me, it was part-time. If I had focused on all the long nights, if I had focused on all the classwork I was going to have to do, I probably would have quit that first year. But that wasn't my focus. I wanted to get that degree. And that's what I kept looking at. Get that degree and see what doors it opens for me. As Christians, that's what we need to be doing. When we look at a problem and focus on that instead of the Lord, that problem gets real big and it looks like it's insurmountable. But when we focus on the Lord, that problem gets smaller. 
Don't focus on your problem because if you do, you're going to stop praying, you're going to stop reading the Word, and you're going to stop using your spiritual gifts. And when that happens, you're going to stop learning, you're going to stop growing, and worst of all, you're not going to see God's faithfulness in your life. So don't stop. Don't give up. Verse 5, don't ignore. Don't drop out of the Christian race. Well, why? What's the purpose of not dropping out? It's hard. Well, the answer is in verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Now, we need to understand that God does not punish us for our sins. Jesus took our punishment for sin. But God does see our sin that we hold on to and fail to repent. Remember, sanctification. He sees it and he corrects us. Now you might be saying, well, John's splitting hairs. What's the difference? I'm still getting a whipping. Well, punishment can be out of revenge or anger. Correction is remedial. Correction is out of a heart of love, taking those things out of our life that are bad for us, that are harmful for us, and removing them. So if we understand that, it makes it a whole lot easier to submit to God's correction. So let me show you what I mean. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. If you endure correction, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not correct? But if you're without correction, of which all become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in submission to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days corrected us, as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no correction seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verses 7 through 11 are a picture, a word picture. And that picture is reinforcing what we learned in verses 5 and 6. And that lesson is that the life we live now, the existence that we're in right now, is our spiritual childhood. Now think about our physical childhood to help us to, to grasp that concept better. And we'll look at it from the aspect of us being the parents. What do we do with our children? We instruct them, we warn them, we give them direction, and we correct them when, need, when we need to. And we do that because we love them. We want to prepare them to be adults. Well, now spiritual childhood is the same thing, but the roles are reversed. We're the children now. And God is the parent. And he sees those things that need to be changed. And he's doing that to prepare us for our spiritual adulthood. Spiritual adulthood being heaven. That's what, this is what it's all about. God's conforming us and changing us and getting ready to take us home. If we understand that and we embrace it, then we'll cooperate with God and we'll grow. And if we don't understand that or if we resist it, we won't grow. Simple as that. We'll get called to heaven as a two-year-old. So I want to look at two things out of these verses 
There's a whole lot there, but we're just going to look at two. The first one is attitude. What should be our attitude when God corrects us? We've already seen this from a negative aspect in verse 5. You know, don't ignore what's God, what God is doing and don't drop out of the race. But in verse 9, we get it from a positive perspective. We, we see that we're supposed to give respect to God. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in submission to the Father of spirits and live? We should respect what God is doing in our life. How do we do that? We submit. That's what the verse says. We don't grumble. We don't complain. We don't want to know why all the time. We just trust God, like we said at the beginning here. The second principle is in verse 11. Now, no correction seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. The carnal man can only see what's in front of his face, the physical, the obvious. But we're not carnal. We're spiritual. We should be able to see beyond that. We should be able to see the spiritual. Um, notice that the author says correction doesn't seem to be joyful. He's qualifying the statement. He's not agreeing that it's painful. He's just saying it doesn't seem to be joyful. Let me give you an illustration of seems because seems is not reality. My family and I, we like to go camping on the Tennessee River. And one thing I like about it is the sunsets. If you've ever camped on the Tennessee River, the sunsets are gorgeous. And I've been known to take a lawn chair down to the bank of the river and just sit there and watch the sun go down. Well, right when that sun gets to where it's about to slip behind the mountains, it's a big old orange globe, and it's beautiful. And it looks a whole lot different than it did at lunchtime. At lunchtime, it looked like it was about this big. In the evening, it looks like it was this big. Well, that's an illusion. We know that the sun isn't bigger. It's just an illusion. We have to see beyond the illusion that Satan wants us to see. We have to see spiritual reality. And that reality is the same thing that we saw in James. That God is at work in our lives and he's doing what we need, what needs to be done. He's doing what, what is good for us. And in this case, it takes correction. We have to walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 puts it this way. While our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal way to glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. If we have that mindset, we're going to look at life differently. We're going to see things that other people don't see. And if we do that, the scripture says, if we submit, we're going to get the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Well, that sounds good, but what is it? What is the peaceable fruit of righteousness? Peaceable fruit describes righteousness. So somehow, if we have righteousness, it's going to bring, bring peace to our life. Well, I want that. I want peace in my life. 
So I want to know what righteousness is. Well, the biblical, biblical definition of righteousness is the character or quality of being just or right. Now, my wife will tell you that I'm always right. But that's not the case. I'm not always right. <laughs> but God is. God's always right. And he's always right because he's faithful. He's always right because he's holy. He's always right because he's truthful. And all those things bring out righteousness in God. He deals with things in a righteous way. For example, God was right to hold mankind accountable for sin. He was also right to deal with sin through the cross. He didn't violate his character in either case. He was just and he was right in both things that he did. Now when we look at us, the Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. But when we exercise faith in Christ, it says the righteousness of God in him. We have that righteousness of Christ. But do you remember we said these verses deal with sanctification and what I just said to you was a a judicial, a justification view of it. These, these verses deal with sanctification, so we're dealing with the practical aspects of righteousness. And the practical aspects of righteousness is our daily life. What did we say happens when we submit to God's correction? He starts to remove those sinful attitudes, those sinful habits that we have, and he, he takes them out of our life. And as that happens, we become a little more righteous and a little more righteous, and a little more righteous. And as that happens, we get peace in our life. Because now we know that everything's right between us and God. There's no sin in between us and God. Well, I want that. So how do I get it? How do I get the peaceable fruit of righteousness? Well, it says that those that are trained by it get it. Trained by it means exercised by it. It's the idea of endurance again that we saw in James. It's exercising those spiritual muscles and growing our faith. So that's the second scripture. Sometimes God has to correct us and he does it for our good out of a heart of love. The last scripture I want to look at is a very familiar one to you. You didn't need to see that slide. It's Romans 8, 28, and 29. You've heard it all your life. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I want to look at three things in this verse. There's a whole lot more here. And if you sign up for the fall small groups, you'll spend eight or nine weeks picking these verses apart and seeing everything that's in them. But we're just going to look at three things. Now, I've been guilty, and I bet you have been guilty too, of quoting this verse, all things work together for good. And just forgetting about that phrase at the beginning, and we know. But if we quote the, that verse like that, we do it in an injustice because... And we know change is really the focus of the verse. If we start with all things work together for good, the promise is the same, and the verse makes sense, but the focus 
is on the promise. All things work. The primary subject and the primary verb is a promise itself. But when we add that phrase at the beginning, and we know it changes the structure of the sentence. And all of a sudden, the focus is, is not on what God is going to do. It's on what we're going to do, how we're going to respond. When we add, and we know, the primary subject now is the pronoun we, and the primary verb is no. So that changes, again, how we're going to look at it. And let me illustrate it with a story that's in the book. So the book that we're going to be going through in the fall by Robert Morgan. Pretend that you have a special ability and you can see three hours into the future. And pretend that you go to your team's, your favorite team's football game, War Eagle, um, on a Saturday. As for you, buddy. <laughs> um, so pretend you go to your favorite team's football game. And at halftime, you look into the future and you see that your team is going to win by kicking a field goal in the final seconds of the game. Well, when the third quarter rolls around, you're going to cheer, you're going to clap, you're going to holler. But when the opposing team scores two touchdowns in the third quarter, it's not going to bother you. You can just shrug it off because the uncertainty of the game is, is gone. You know the final score. That is how we're supposed to be looking at life, and that's, that's what this verse is focused on. We don't know what's going to happen in our life moment from moment. We're, we're called to walk by faith in that regard. But we're also called to walk by faith in regard to what's going to happen ultimately. We know ultimately everything's going to work out for our good. And that's how we should live our life. The second principle is that all things work for our good. Now, in the original language, all things means all things. Everything the good and the bad. So God can take mistakes that we make in our life. He can take tragedies that come about in our life. And yeah, he can even take sin and turn it around for good. Now, you wonder, how can God take sin and work anything good out of that? I want to read a quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a British minister in the early 1900s. He said this, trials and tribulations and failures and sin are not good in and of themselves and it's a folly to pretend that they are. They are bad. How then can we justify the statement that all of them work together for our good? The answer is that they are so used by God, so overruled by God, so employed by God that they turn out for our good. I think in short, what is being said here is that God is bigger than our sin. Let me give you just one example. David and Bathsheba. David paid an awful price for that sin. But God was able to still work out some good from that sin. Um, we've got Psalms 51 and Psalms 32. Some of the greatest scriptures that deal with repentance. We have um, King Solomon. And all of his writings came out of that. And most importantly, we have Christ. Because Christ came through the line of David and Solomon. I would say that's working out good from, from sin. So, we should never look at sin lightly. 
Because we will pay a price for our sin. We reap what we sow. And even more importantly, God hates sin. So as Christians, we never want to do anything that, that God hates. But I think, understanding that, we should also know that God's plan for our life will not be stopped by sin or by anything else. God is going to work his plan out regardless. So what is that plan? What is that purpose? Well, if we look at first part of verse 29, oops, I've lost two slides. Um, it says that um, in the first part of verse 29, it says, whom, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That word conform means to fashion or be formed. It's a picture of a potter taking a lump of clay and working that clay and turning it into <clears throat> something useful and, in some cases, something beautiful. That definition of being conformed then implies it, it's a process. And it's a process that is sometimes painful. Sometimes it hurts. Look again at verse 29a. It says, and we know that all things work together for our comfort. Is that what it says? No. How about we know all things work together for our pleasure? No. God is not interested in our comfort or our pleasure. He's interested in growing us and making us like Christ. All things work together for our good. And sometimes what is good is hard to go through. It's like medicine. It tastes bad and it burns going down but it heals. So I want to ask you a question. Let's see if I got. What do you want out of this life? When you get to the end of your life and you look back on it, what do you want to see? And I want to close with this quote by Warren Wiersbe. It says, Our values determine our evaluations. I want to read that again because that's important. And I want to paraphrase it. Our values in life determine our evaluations of life. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and we forget the future, trials will make us bitter, not better. So I would challenge you, whatever you're going through, Look at it from an eternal perspective and trust God that he's going to work all that out for your good. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we know that you love us. And Lord, um, we know that you only have our good in mind. But Lord, sometimes our, our sight gets clouded by sin. Pray that you would help us, Lord, to see clearly what you're doing in our lives and Lord to trust you and whatever that is however hard it is to trust you Lord that you've got our best in mind so Lord we just ask that uh, ask that as we leave today that we think about these things and uh, ponder them over the day today and maybe tomorrow as well and, and Lord that you'd help us to live an intentional life
a life that has active faith in you, that holds on to the promises you've made and shows that we really do trust you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John, thank you. Um, You've been a blessing. Uh, your, Your testimony and watching you live for the past five years has been a blessing to so many of us. And we, uh, we just appreciate your willingness to share this morning. Guys, let's all stand. We're going to sing the stand. Um, this song is about surrender, and, and specifically it's about surrender in light of the fact that God is our creator and our redeemer. Let's all sing this together. In awe of the one who gave it 
Amen, and thank you, John, uh, very much uh, for this morning. Um, how many of you were ministered to this morning through the Word? Amen. Thank you. Um, I know he was looking forward to it, and uh, now he can breathe easier, right, John? <laughs> and uh, we really, really appreciate it. I just want you to know, John, that I followed you well through Hebrews, and I followed you well through Romans. But my granddaughter, Janae, tore out James, so I may need you to sit down with me and go over that again. I went to James, I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot she tore it out. Um, Well, we really, really appreciate, John, you taking us through the Word this morning, and uh, we're so thankful. We're a very, very blessed congregation of people to have so many men that can open God's Word and bring it to us, and I really, really appreciate you sharing this morning, John. Why don't we uh, bow together and let's close in prayer. Lord, this morning, uh, we won't be able to walk out without thinking through um, the things that John shared with us this morning from your word. Every passage demands a response. So I pray that you would work on us you continue to do that, Lord, that we would respond uh, in your will and in your way. And I thank you for the encouragement we've received this morning and the challenge from your word. And I pray, Lord, as, as we um, have the opportunities to spend more and more time with you through your word, that you would help us to grow by it, and that, Lord, we in turn would take the opportunity to share the things like this morning, what we've learned with other believers 
so that they may grow stronger in their faith. Lord, help us to be uh, keenly aware of the opportunities you give us this week to share the gospel. And we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. You're dismissed.